What's up, folks? This is Tony Brewery. You're listening to Cogitations. Cogitations is the podcast where we think about things, we contemplate them, we turn them over in our minds, and then we discuss them. Daniel chapter 7, verse 28, Daniel writes, Hitherto is the end of the matter. As for me, Daniel, my cogitations much troubled me. My countenance changed in me, but I kept the matter in my heart. We're not keeping a matter in our heart. We're talking about it. Today, we're going to talk about open forum, Q&A, and I've already got two things to talk about. I've been Folks have been telling me for a while, hey, man, you need to do Q&A. And the problem with Q&A is it's hard to be consistent because not all the time do you have the audience with Brent come with questions. However, I thought, well, what if we did, what if we scheduled or what if we made one day per week a free-for-all? And then there you have it. That's what we've got. So that's what we're going to do today. If I don't get to everything, roll it over to next week, and next week will be a Friday free-for-all. Um, I'm not drinking coffee. I'm drinking water. Incidentally, this is not a Stanley cup. This is a Yeti. Uh, this is something. This is a cup that my son got for me. Um, for those of you that wonder, I can drink two or three of these before noon, and uh, I, I drink a lot. There's nothing better in the world to me than, than good water. But anyway, uh, amazing that I, I shared a short from the show yesterday and it garnered eight subscribers. So we're up to 185 subscribers. So that one short garnered eight subscribers. And then we had two subscribers from somewhere. We've picked up another paid subscriber on Substack. So we're bringing in about $1,200 a year on Substack, which is about $100 a month. And uh, we're, we, have, we have roughly about $100 a month coming in on Patreon. We don't do anything on Patreon. So if you're supporting us through Patreon, God bless you. Um, but we would love for you to support us on Substack at $5 a month, or you can send money to nearchurches at gmail.com. That's our, that's our PayPal. Sorry. I forgot what that was. Anyway, good to see you. Um, that's right. Thou shalt drink only coffee. I don't know, man. I, I think, I think that because water and coffee are mixed, that I'm allowed to drink all water as well. This is this is this is this is not this is this is coffee. It's just it's just pre-coffee. All right. Good morning, everybody. Robert Lady's here. Um, Diana Harden. Good to see you. Hold on. Let me get let me get to the chat where I can actually scroll. Um, John Exum. Good morning to you, brother. Uh, Terry Crooks, and of course Robert Lady. Um, Romans 16, 17 and 18, how it can be applied. Um, yeah, I mean, Romans 16, 17 and 18, it's, it's, uh, well, we'll read it. I'll show you, or I'll show you how we'll, we'll look at it here. And then I've got a, I got a big one. I got two, I got one big one and then one medium one. And, uh, come on, Tony. But let me get this real quick. I think this go. I think we can we can cover this in pretty good. Uh, Romans 16, 17, and 18. Now I beseech you, brethren, mark them which cause division and offenses contrary to the doctrine which we have learned, and avoid them, for they that are such serve not our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own belly, and by good words and fair speech deceive the hearts of the simple. I like how Dan Winkler exegetes this. He says, and I agree with him, that the application here is not mark them which cause, um, hold on a second, mark them which cause division and offenses contrary to like the doctrine of Christ, like baptism for remission of sins, um, things that we consider matters of fellowship. He is talking about, Dan Winkler says that what Paul is referring to here is back in Romans chapter 14. If you have anybody in your congregation that is causing a fuss over matters of scruple, 
in either way, in other words, if you've got a person that has a scruple and is causing a fuss saying that other people shouldn't do it, or if you have somebody that, that doesn't hold that scruple and they're causing a fuss with that, then you have to mark them because they are causing offenses contrary to the doctrine of Romans chapter 14 and 15, which was taught to these people. In fact, you can go all the way down. I mean, it's, it's probably a little bit deeper and more nuanced. But what does it mean to mark somebody? Well, it's a little bit hard for me to illustrate here. Um, and boy, a lot of people have... they they. I've talked with with groups of men that have that are dealing with um, blatant sin in the congregation, and they have a problem with the word mark. And it may be because I grew up in the South and in the Deep South, and it comes from marking hogs, from branding cattle. Uh, maybe they're thinking about the mark of Cain. All it is, is you note that person. Like you say, well, John Exum, he believes that if you have a Christmas tree, you're going to bust hell wide open. Okay. But he won't keep his mouth shut about it. And so he, he makes it a test of fellowship. So you've got to be careful with John Exum. Him, right there. That's him. That's all you're doing when you're marking. And, and you ostracize those people, you know? Um, it, it's not that big a deal, really. Uh, we want to love people, but man, you can't let toxic people. Well, I mean, you, you can't, you're not going to let toxic people stay in your life. In fact, you know, we, we've just had three live streams all having to do with contentment with, with toxicity, love bombing, flattery, stuff like that. And, uh, yeah, you, you people like that, you kind of. Get them out the way. Um, talk to them about the issue, and if they won't listen, take them before the elders, etc. Yeah, well, take them before the church. Um, the the elders, the elders are are they 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 have to lead, but uh, church discipline their church discipline can be practiced without elders. Um, that's a common misconception about church discipline. I can withdraw fellowship. I can withdraw my fellowship from somebody and not have the support of my elders. Um, that would be an odd thing to do, you know. I mean, we would it would once something like that has gone that far down the the pipe. There's some ancillary issues somewhere that 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 went south. But yeah, other translations use keep an eye on and turn away from them. Yeah, that's absolutely. Would it apply to people who say a doctrine is an opinion? Uh, it would apply, yes. Uh, like for instance, if, uh, well, okay. Mechanical instruments of music is a good, um, is a good, good one to use for an illustration. Mechanical instruments of music is a matter of fellowship. No two ways about it. If you if you practice psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, offering them to God with anything other than singing, making melody in your heart, then you are offering vain worship. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 15 and 16, there are two sacrifices with which God is well pleased, and that's a life lived in service, and that is the fruit of our lips. Anything other than that's displeasing to God, it's vain. However, what if you're in a congregation of 100 people and they are a sound congregation, but you personally are convicted that it's not a matter of fellowship, but a matter of judgment about psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with mechanical instruments of music. But you don't practice it, you just think it's a matter of judgment. Well, then you're fine. But I tell you what you have to do. You have to keep your mouth shut. You cannot cause a ruckus. In fact, that takes me, Neil Abbott, to uh, Titus. Uh, I can't remember. I, I, is this is 310. Is that right? 36? No, 310. A man that is an heretic. After the first and second admonition, reject, knowing that such is subverted and sinneth because, 
or being condemned of himself. The person that says something that is clearly doctrine is a matter of opinion. In other words, by doctrine, we mean where has God legislated? God has legislated psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, singing, making melody in the heart. And if you do anything other than that, you're a heretic. If you're vocal about it, if you try to change the minds of the people around you, you are to be warned once and, and, and from people I trust who probably who know way more about the Greek language than me, I have heard it exegeted a man that is an heretic after the first and no more than the second admonition you reject because he's causing problems. And I would say you would follow right into Romans 16, 17, and 18. You mark them because they're causing divisions contrary to the doctrine which they have learned. In other words, you you got to... You you got to give people room to grow. I'm telling you, there's uh, now that you said this, I'm going to share two. I'm going to share two articles in the uh, live stream here that that really will help us on this, and hopefully I can find them. Um, hold on a second. Oh, right here. Uh, okay. Copy. Uh, hold up. No. Well, that's fine. Okay. Share. Copy link. All right. I'm going to drop this article. I'm going to drop this article in the live stream. Uh, it's signs about a spiritually and religiously codependent congregation. Uh, you can have a spiritually, religiously codependent congregation and it be very bad. Um, I'll read the introduction. In a quest to understand the health of a local church, spiritual or religious codependency might not be the first issue that springs to mind. However, the effects of such a dysfunction can ripple across a congregation, causing spiritual stagnancy and undermining the true essence of Christian fellowship, The which is what Romans 16 uh, 17 and 18 is talking about and incidentally Titus 3 10 uh, the matter is serious and deserves attention for not only hinders personal growth but also creates an environment that is incompatible with Christ's teachings and the headings are we define codependency in a religious context and uh, <clears throat> uh, you the, here are the signs of a, of a codependent congregation Number one, an unhealthy attachment to leadership, fear of dissent or questions, an over-reliance on programs and activities, lack of personal spiritual discipline, suppressing individual talents and roles. And uh, yeah, so check out that article. And then there's another one that uh, this is called Heeding the Divine Call, uh, How He That Hath Ears to Hear Transformed My Approach to Local Ministry. And I think y'all will really enjoy these and it will give you an insight into how I think and all that good stuff. But, but yeah, so, so to Neil Abbott's comment, absolutely. If there's a settled matter of doctrine where God is legislated and you have somebody that claims it's an opinion and they won't shut up about it, then that's a heretic. And then you mark them and you, and you, and you get yourself away from them. Good question. Good, good comments. Thank you so much. Now, let's dive off into a really terrible one. I'm not going to tell you who gave me this because it's a terrible comment. It's a terrible, brutal, all right? I'm going to read this, but I'm going to tell you who it is. In today's if today's cogitation episode from the, is from the audience, I had someone bring up in Bible class a couple of weeks ago, is God justified for killing small children in the Old Testament? And if God is justified in killing those children, is abortion ever justified now? There are a lot of strong feelings on this topic, and it creates a lot of discussion. My response, oof. Brother, you dove off into the deep end right off the bat, LOL. This will be a good one. All right, well, thanks. And uh, so first off, let's talk about abortion. Let's work backwards. Is abortion ever justified? The answer is no. 
Never, ever, not ever, under any circumstances is abortion ever justified. Then somebody would say, well, Tony, what about a case of a tubal pregnancy where the, the embryo implants in the, in the tubes, and I'm no doctor, but I'm thinking tubes is fallopian tubes and not the uterus. Somebody can fact check me on that. And in order to, if, if the, so both the baby and the mother will die with no intervention, but the only intervention is to terminate that pregnancy. Okay. That's not an abortion. Now this may sound like semantics. This may sound like, um, you're splitting hairs and quite frankly, it is. It is because first off, this is an absolute dreadful scenario. But if I'm a doctor and, and this woman is my patient and she's going to die, I am going to treat her. And if it is the case that a subsequent consequence of my treating her is that the baby dies, then that is an absolute tragic thing. But that would be the same morally and ethically as if I am a police officer or I'm a fireman and I run into a burning building and I start saving people and I see someone trapped under a beam and I lift up that beam and pull one person out, but it causes something to shift and fall on another person. You know what? That's morally and ethically the same. Now you might say, well, Tony, your, your intentions, well, it's not a, it's not a perfect analog, but the treatment, the, the action that saved the life of one person tragically caused the life of another. And I have no control over that. So that's how we deal with it. It's not an abortion. For instance, what if you have a woman who is, who has metastatic breast cancer? Like it's, it's, it's breast cancer and it's metastasized. They didn't know it, but she's eight months pregnant. Well, if she's eight months pregnant, you're just going to do a C-section and treat the cancer. Let's say she's three weeks pregnant, six weeks. I, you can tell I'm a man. <laughs> when can you know what eight weeks? Let's say she's eight weeks pregnant. And then on a wellness check, on a, on a checkup, the, the OBGYN says, listen, I got some, we did blood work and, and we got to get some tests and they do the test. Like, Oh, you're eat up with cancer. Uh, if you don't start this, this radiation, uh, you're going to die. And if you start this radiation, then you'll have, you know, you'll have years left. But what do you do in that situation? You see, that's going to kill the baby. You save the life of the mother and the subsequent consequence of the life-saving action is tragically the baby dies. That is not the same as sacrificing your baby in order that you live. It may feel like it. It's brutal. But morally and ethically, it's different. There's no such thing as an abortion saving the life of the mother. You do what it takes to save the life of the mother, and sometimes the baby dies. Okay? All right. Now, working backwards, what about God killing all those children in the Old Testament? I, I sat down, I chewed on this a little bit. Let's go to Deuteronomy, and let's learn something about God. <clears throat> this is Moses' song, which setteth forth. And uh, this is the heading of my Bible, which setteth, with set, which setteth forth God's mercy and vengeance. For the Lord shall judge his people and repent himself for his servants when he seeth that their power is gone and there is none shut up or left. And he shall say, where are the lowercase g, gods, their rock in whom they trusted, which did eat the fat of their sacrifices and drank wine of 
and drink the wine of their drink offerings. Let them rise up and help you and be your protection. It's a Sophie's Choice situation. That's it, Scott Black. Yes, and, and it's a huge difference. Like I said, it's if I've got if my wife has got cancer and she's also pregnant, we're going to treat the cancer, and sometimes the baby dies. And with a tubal pregnancy, the baby's going to die anyway. So if you don't do anything, the baby's going to die and the mother's going to die. If you remove the baby, then the mother is going to live and the baby is still going to die. So your human interaction has been a net zero. Well, actually, it's been a net positive because the mother lives. All right. Verse 39. See now that I, even I, am he, and there is no God with me. In other words, I'm alone. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal. Neither is there any that can deliver out of my hand. Folks, we, these creatures that were made from the dirt, are looking up at the almighty sovereign God of the universe without whom we would have no breath of life and we indict him for his actions? What a stupid notion. That should be the end of it. But luckily, God is a loving God, and he gives us ways to think about this. Think about it in God's timeline. Think about it from God's perspective. Um, let's go to Psalm 73. I'm going to read... I don't know. It's not but 28 verses. I'm going to read the whole song. Let me get some water. <clears throat> Truly God is good to Israel, even to such that are of a clean heart. But as for me, my feet were almost gone. My steps had well nigh slipped. For I was envious at the foolish when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For there are no bands in their death, but their strength is firm. They are not in trouble as other men, neither are they plagued like other men. Therefore pride compasseth them about as a chain. Violence covereth them as a garment. Their eyes stand out with fatness, and they have more than they could wish. They are corrupt and speak wickedly concerning oppression. They speak loftily. They sit there, they're taking pleasure in their wicked actions. They set their mouth against the heavens. They're rebellious. Their tongue walketh through the earth. Therefore, this people is returned hither, and waters of a full cup are wrung out to them. Man, there's two different ways to think of that. These people, these wicked people that are prospering, they have so much. But these people that they've oppressed, all they give them is what you can wring out from a rag. Anyway, verse 11. I'm not going to talk about the other way to interpret it. Verse 11. And they say, how doth God know? And is there knowledge in the Most High? In other words, these fools think, because we haven't been punished for our wickedness, obviously there's either no God or God approves of what we're doing. Behold, these are ungodly who prosper in the world. They increase in riches. Verily, I have cleansed my heart in vain and washed my hands in innocency. For all the day long I have been plagued and chastened every morning. If I say I will speak thus, behold, I should offend against the generation of thy children. When I thought to know this, it was too painful for me. Why? Because he's looking at it from a human perspective. He has got to reorient himself and look at it from a God perspective. From a divine perspective. Listen, verse 17. Here it is. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then understood I their end. We have to put ourselves, and I'm not going to read the rest of it, we have to put ourselves in God's position and look at it as if we were him. 
I want you to think about Mother Teresa. So-called. She's not my mother. Mother Teresa, the saint of Calcutta, was a very evil woman. And she did a lot of damage. Do you want me to tell you why? Because she kept a bunch of starving children from dying. Now, I know what you're thinking, Tony. That, that, that's terrible. Mm, no. Look at it from God's perspective. On a, on a long view of reality, from the perspective of eternity, what Mother Teresa did was she took those little children who were going to die and she allowed them to live until they became accountable to the law, at which point they either converted to Catholicism or they stayed in their Hindu faith, both of which are paths to hell. So from, from the standpoint of eternity, did Mother Teresa do good or do bad? Well, Mother Teresa might stand before God and say, did I not do all these good things? And God is going to look at her and say, depart from me, I never knew you, you worker of iniquity. Whenever we take a long view, an eternal view, when we look at it from the perspective of eternity, when God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, when God was going to destroy the city of Nineveh, when God destroyed the Amorites, the Amalekites, the Hittites, the Hivites, and those children died, God saved those children from an eternity in hell. Now, that is strange, strange, strange to you and me. But from God's perspective, that's what happened. The flood, Sodom and Gomorrah, the Canaanites, the other examples like this are, are God-authorized. Something the abortion is not God-authorized. Something like abortion is not God-authorized. Absolutely, yeah. And, and that's the thing. Also, the flood, Sodom and Gomorrah, all of those are directly done by God. And then the Canaanites, which is, you know, the what you're referring to is the conquest of the land of promise, where the Hittites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, the Perizzites, the, the Hittites, the Hivites, the uh, who else? Canaanites. I feel like I'm missing some. Um, whenever they slew all of those people, including the children, you know, that they were they were being punished the 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 israelites were the sword of god being punished and sadly the the children died as well but remember from god's perspective those children go straight to paradise awaiting their heavenly home that's actually a mercy is it not and again i get it that's hard for us. All right. So, um, yeah, so we, we have to think about God's sovereignty and justice. At the heart of understanding the actions attributed to God in the Old Testament is the recognition of God's sovereignty. And we looked at that at Deuteronomy 32, 39. Uh, See now that I, even I, am he, and there is no God with me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal. Neither is there any that can deliver out of my hands. This assertion underscores the divine prerogative to give life and to take it away according to his perfect will and justice. The events in the Old Testament that involve the loss of children's lives, such as the judgments against the Egyptians in Exodus or the Canaanites in the conquest of the promised land, must be understood within the context of divine justice responding to human wickedness. So that's another thing to think about. You know, there is evil in this world, and there is an evildoer, and 
we know that death surrounds evil people, and sometimes there is collateral damage. It's not God's fault that during the punishment of the Amorites, the Amalekites, the Canaanites, that little children died. Little children were going to die. But his punishment against those people to wipe them off the face of the earth, the only way you can do that is if you kill the children. And again, when you look at it from a long view, killing the children was mercy because they're going directly to God. All right, so for instance, judgment against the against Egypt culminating in the death of the firstborn, Exodus 12, 29 through 30, was a direct response to Pharaoh's oppression of God's people and his refusal to heed God's command for their release. Those people, those children, the firstborn didn't die because God killed them. They died because the Egyptian people were rebellious. And incidentally, God said, you, your children don't have to die. Rub the blood on your doorstop. The Bible portrays God. Oh boy, I stuttered there, didn't I? The Bible portrays God as just, holy, and righteous, but also compassionate, loving, and merciful. I go back to Ezekiel chapter 18, uh, verse 32, where God says, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, saith the Lord. Therefore, turn yourselves and live ye. Folks, God wants us to turn to him and live. He's saying you've got a choice. On one hand is death, on the other is life. Choose life. And sadly, sometimes when you choose death, the sad thing is you're not the only one that dies. Think about a drunk driver. When the drunk driver chooses to drive drunk, guess what? He sometimes is not the, is not the one that dies. I have, I have heard of stories from my youth of drivers who drove drunk and run into a family of four, killing all the family. And that drunk driver walk out of it unscathed physically. Makes you want to bring back hanging people from a high tree with a short rope, a quick drop and a fast stop. The act of taking life, especially that of an unborn human by, by human decision cannot be equated with divine acts of judgment within a theological context. The moral and ethical considerations surrounding abortion involve the principles of the sanctity of life and the prohibition against taking innocent life as outlined in Exodus 20, verse 13. Thou shalt not, well, murder, the word kill in the King James, but it's murder. Um, Terry Crooks, uh, Church of Christ in New York, attempted to enforce tithing, prompting me to scrutinize the scriptures. Subsequently, a group of individuals collaborated and sent me an email to provide justification for enforcing tithing. That is nuts. I don't, I don't understand, Terry, how these people come to this conclusion. In the New Testament, it's free will offering. Tithing was in force in the Old Testament for a practical purpose. Tithing was an income tax, basically. Tithing was a governmental tax so the government could operate. I'm going to put my tongue in my cheek. There is tithing under the new government. You give your tithe to the, to, to the new covenant. You give your tithe to the government, but you give your free will offering to God. I, just, I wish I had more for you on this. It's just too simple. All right. I hope I've answered about the abortion question uh, well. And then there's another one here. Um, this comment. Uh, I read Matt Walsh's post and subsequent comment, and it made me think of our previous conversation on the worship of animals in our society. I thought 
the comment was a succinct overview of the situation. So I'm going to, okay, so Matt Walsh is a political pundit in the United States, and he's right-wing. He makes no bones about it. He put out a wonderful documentary called What is a Woman? If you haven't watched it, even if you have to pay to watch it, I suggest watching it. It's great. It's informative, and it's absolutely scary. But Matt Walsh, he has a lot of hot takes, um, some of which I kind of cringe at. But overall, I like him. In other words, I feel like he's in our corner. Matt Walsh, years from now, historians will look at our culture's devotion or devolution, rather, into pet worship and write many volumes attempting to diagnose it. But I think it but I think the cause is quite clear. Selfishness. Now, I don't think it's a sin for you to have a pet. In fact, Maslow. Where you at, buddy? Wake up. Come here. Matt, yeah, there we go. Come here, buddy. This dude is groggy. He's sleeping. Come on. Come up here. Look at him. Here he is. Dude, it just takes him so long to wake up. Yeah, buddy. So anyway, this old Maslow, look, he's snoring still. He's trying to go to sleep right now. All right. All right. Get back down. I'll get you a bone later after the live stream. Um... He's a dog. I love him, but I love him like I love, I love my microphone. Okay. He's a dog. He's not a human. I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to be a little crass here, but if we ever got to starving, there's a lot of meat on him. You get me? He's a, he's not a human. He's, he's such a, uh, he, he, he brings value to my life. He's affectionate. He, he keeps me grounded sometimes whenever I wouldn't be otherwise. He's just a good, he's a good thing to have around. But our house is not set up around him. We don't worship him. If he didn't provide value for us, we wouldn't have him. He's not like a child. I do not, I mean, my Anthony and Abigail do not consider him a brother. All right. Next, uh, this is, this is from Matt Walsh. Unlike a spouse or children, the pet makes no demands or requires significant or, or, uh, requires no significant sacrifices. A pet is simply a blank slate that the loveless modern man can turn into a little avatar of himself. He worships his dog because his dog worships him. And yeah, sadly, that, that is the case. Um, a lot of times that happens. We, we've got to be careful, folks. Dogs are dogs and people is people. And people is better than dogs. People is better than animals. Um, however, let's go to let's go to the book of Proverbs. I think it's twelve ten. Listen, God doesn't expect you to be cruel to these animals. Listen, a righteous man regardeth the life of his beast, but the tender mercies of the wicked are cruel. So a righteous man is going to take care of the animals under his care, but a wicked man. Even when he's trying to be tender and merciful, he's still cruel. That's why we put people in jail for abusing animals. But I think our society is turned upside down whenever we uh, put people in jail for abusing animals. But we let folks go free who kill babies. Just something to think about. We've got to be very careful. Folks, I'm out of material now. Not bad. We got 40 minutes into it. Um, I hope you read the two articles that I put in the live stream. Um, we'll end. I'll look at this, Heeding a Divine Call, How to Avoid Becoming Spiritually and Religiously Codependent in a Congregation, and then How He That Hath Ears to Hear Transform My Approach to Ministry. Um, I'm going to read a little bit of it before we get off the air. 
One of the most recurrent and striking phrases uttered by Jesus in the New Testament is, he that hath ears to hear, let him hear. This statement serves as both an invitation and a challenge, a call to spiritual insight and personal responsibility, yet what does the phrase genuinely mean? And how does understanding it affect the way we approach ministry in Christian life? This article aims to dissect the phrase's biblical and theological implications and examine its transformative power in local ministry. So the biblical context of he that hath ears to hear, let him hear. Well, first off, you've got the parable of the sower. You've got explaining some parables. You've got the cost of discipleship. And you've got the good and evil treasures of the heart. And that's Luke 14, Matthew 11, um, Matthew 13, Matthew 4, Matthew 13, Matthew 4, Luke 8. And you can read the article. But anyway, then you've got the letters of the seven churches. So the church at Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamos, Thyatira, Sardis, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea, all he that hath ears to hear, let him hear. Well, he that hath ears to hear is a call to deep listening. When Jesus said, he, when Jesus says, he that hath ears to hear, let him hear, he's not just talking about actual hearing. It's a call to a more involved kind of listening with accompanying action. And then there's a personal responsibility and the onus of action. And this is the important one. When Jesus says, he that hath ears to hear, let him hear, he moves beyond the auditory to the actionable. Jesus assigns the listener the task of personal change, signaling the transformation isn't optional but obligatory. The gospel serves as a catalyst offering the truth that underpins spiritual growth and moral integrity. However, the individual must do more than just listen. They must also reflect, understand, and integrate these truths in their daily lives. In sum, the gospel's message emphasizes the active an active engagement with spirituality, underscoring the importance of personal responsibility in the spiritual journey. And that's the point that I focused on, is personal responsibility. I don't obey for you. As a gospel preacher, my job is to preach the truth. If you've got a set of ears, it's for you, buddy. What are you going to do with it? I'm not responsible for that. So the practical impact on local ministry is a love for the word. The preacher's primary drive is to keep is deep reverence for spiritual truth. This motivates him to delve into complex or challenging subjects rather than just opting for the quote-unquote easy topics that may be more palatable but less edifying. And then a respect for the congregation. The preacher's willingness to address difficult topics serves as an indicator of respect for his audience. If you're a preacher and you only ever preach the easy stuff because you think your audience is, is too deep for your audience, you don't understand how disrespectful, narcissistic, and uh, condescending you're being. I heard, um, what's his face? Politician ousted from the Democratic Party in the United States, Tom D uh, or John Deberry. I heard John Deberry in a, in a lecture one time says, "Look, I, I I treat every one of you like you're Bible scholars. I expect you to have a certain level of knowledge, and if you don't, I expect you to learn. It is the height of foolishness, and it is the height of narcissism and and, and, and entitlement." for a member of a congregation or a group of members of the congregation to come to the gospel preacher and say, hey, you, you preach above our head, so you need to tone it down. No, I preach above your head, so you have a standard to which you aspire. If I didn't preach above your head, if I didn't teach above your heads, then you'd never grow. You want me to teach you like your little bitty kindergartners? Because you're too stupid to learn or you're too lazy to learn? Which is it? Are you stupid or are you lazy? Don't ever come to me and complain that I'm talking above your head. I respect you enough to speak to you as if you have the base level of knowledge that a person that's been 30 years in Christ should have. But that'll get me riled up. A culture of empowerment. 
Preaching with this attitude fosters a culture of empowerment among the congregants. The preacher's stance essentially communicates, I believe you can handle these truths and make the necessary changes, and I will help you if you need help. I'm here to assist. You can do it. The, it, it, it this idea of, of he that hath ears to hear, let him hear, it's the freedom to preach the unfiltered truth because if you got a set of ears, this is for you. It creates a conducive atmosphere. This understanding fosters an environment of truth and empowerment as the congregation knows they're both guided and respected. This atmosphere is not only conducive to spiritual growth, but it also attracts new believers contributing both the spiritual and numerical growth. Folks, we need to adopt this. Good morning, Sheila Cole. It's good to see you. So anyway, yeah, that, that's what we've got. I'm, I'm so thankful. I think it went very well this morning. Um, I think I like this free for all Friday. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to try it next week. Next week, we're going to have a free for all Friday. And I want you to come with your questions, your comments, your observations, and there's something I do want to say now that I've, I'm going to make a video called, hold on, modeling behavior for my YouTube channel, our YouTube channel. And let me tell you why. Uh, yesterday I, I got, I, I did something off the cuff and that's what gets you in trouble. Uh, in first Corinthians chapter 14, there is a verse that people, um, Hold on. People make an odd argument from. Oh, come on. I thought it was 32. It's not 32. Bear with me. I, I'm, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to lose my mind. All right. Bear with me. First Corinthians 14. Where is it at? First Corinthians 14. Right here, 16. Else when thou shalt confess with the Spirit, how shall he that occupieth the room of the unlearned say amen at the giving of thanks? Some, some people say, well, women in the auditorium don't have the authority to say amen. And I'm like, well, why? Because right here in 1 Corinthians 14, verse 16, uh, Else when thou shalt bless with the spirit, how shall them that occupy the room of the unlearned say amen at thy giving of thanks, seeing as he understandeth not what thou sayest? Well, the word, um, the word here, first off, he is not, it, it's just masculine, but it doesn't have to do with gender. All right. Now, hold on. Let me get back. So people that are in this assembly who listen to the prophesying or the speaking in tongues to listen to what's being said, if you agree with it, you say amen. If you don't agree with it, you just keep your mouth shut. If somebody's speaking in tongues and there's no interpreter, how can those who don't have this charismatic ability this miraculous ability, how can they put their stamp of approval on what's being said because they don't know? So it's not edifying. And I got hung up on this whenever a, a commenter was like, you know, we visitors absolutely can come into the assembly because of 1 Corinthians 14. And I perseverated. I hyper-focused on verse 16 to the exclusion of verse 23. If therefore the whole church be come together into one place and all speak with tongues and there come in those that are unlearned, which I think that is unlearned as in the same kind of unlearned in the, in verse 16, which is they're not inspired. They don't have any miraculous gifts or unbelievers, a pistos, which is just unfaithful unbelievers they're not christians and i was hyper focused on it 
on verse 16 that I forgot about verse 23 and I took a stance that I didn't mean to take. And that's why I'm saying this now, not that I'm repenting. I mean, I didn't think I didn't anything. I didn't do anything wrong. It's just, or I didn't do anything sinful. It was just the dangers of doing the type of podcasting that I do, which is almost 100% extemporaneous. You're going to do stuff like this from time to time and misspeak. So anyway, good stuff with that. And uh, so I'm going to be putting out a, a, a video about modeling behavior because I think when something like that happens, because the person sent me a private message and said, Hey, I didn't want to, I didn't want to, I can't remember the exact words, take over the live stream or anything like that, but it specifically says unbelievers in verse 23. And I'm like, Oh yeah, that's the dangers of, of extemporaneous live streaming like that. I said, you should have put it in the comment section it would have made for good content. I mean, I, I'm, I love, I, I have no pride whatsoever when it comes to stuff like this. If I misspeak, put it in the comment section, you know, um, it doesn't, it's not going to bother me at all. In fact, I, I enjoy it. It makes for good content. And, uh, that's why I think I'm, I'm going to do this video modeling behavior. I got to figure out how to put it together, but I'm going to use this as an issue, you know, Model behavior. If you if you if you want people to speak up, uh, and you want to create an environment where people are free to even dissent if they're respectful, then you got to model behavior. And whenever somebody speaks up or you've misspoken, you've got to take it with grace. So anyway, uh, hopefully that's something you can take away from the live stream. Yeah, if there is no interpreter, aren't they told to be silent? Yes. So this, this is where Paul, he's not dealing with what should be. He's dealing with what's going on. And the fact of the matter was those folks in Corinth, he's, they were speaking without an interpreter. And Paul is saying, if you do this, how in the world can those who are not believers or those who don't have the ability to interpret miraculously, how can they say amen? How can they learn anything? They can't. So if you don't have an interpreter and you're speaking in tongues, just keep your mouth shut. Yeah, you hit the nail on the head there, Sheila Co. All right, folks, that's all I've got here. Look, remember, Substack, $5 a month. It would be awesome. Support, uh, uh, subscribe on YouTube. Share the content. Um, the Read the two articles that I put in the comment section about codepend religious and spiritual codependency. And, uh, yeah, that's all I've got here. God bless every one of you. We will uh, see you Monday. I hope you really enjoy your Lord's Day. If you if you haven't planned on it, please find a group of Christians to meet with and worship God with. You're really missing out if you're not. And you, you, you may miss out on heaven, quite frankly. Anyway, this is all I got. God bless everyone. This has been Tony Brew with Cogitations, powered by Christianity Now. Y'all have uh, really been great, and we will catch you on the flip side.